So we are continuing in this series uh, called The Sex God. This past week, Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy magazine, died. Hefner was 91 years old. Hefner launched Playboy magazine in 1953 when he was just 27 years old. He started with $600 of his own money. He had $1,000 from his mother. And then uh, a number of other investors had uh, put in a few thousand more. But it was one particular asset that he had that really launched the Playboy magazine. It was a nude calendar photograph of the Hollywood bombshell Marilyn Monroe that he had paid $500 for the rights to. When the first issue hit the stands in December of 1953 with Marilyn Monroe on its cover, its press run, its first press run of 51,000 magazines immediately sold out. After only five years, Playboy magazine's annual profits, remember the initial investment was $500, its annual profits were $4 million, and its rabbit head logo was recognized all around the world. By the time Playboy reached its peak in the 1970s, it had become a multi-million dollar empire. Hefner, uh, excuse me, Hefner himself became a cultural icon. He popularized the term centerfold, glamorized an urbane playboy lifestyle. And he helped spur the sexual, sexual revolution of the 1960s. This past week, celebrities tweeted their tributes to Hefner. For instance, Larry King tweeted this. Hugh Hefner was a giant in publishing, journalism, free speech, and civil rights. He was a true original, and he was my friend. Rest well, Hef. Kim Kardashian tweeted this, RIP to the legendary Hugh Hefner. I'm so honored to have been a part of the Playboy team. You will be greatly missed. Love you, Hef. XOXO. Paula Abdul wrote, R.I.P. to a legend, Hugh Hefner was watching the Amazon documentary at the same time that he passed. Hashtag R.I.P. Hef. I suspect that this is the moment that you would expect me as a, as a pastor to pronounce some kind of moral judgment here on Hefner. But it would be incredibly hypocritical of me to do so. Because, because, I, because I, and I suspect every man in the room, I don't know, say 45 years old, I ogled over some of the women in his magazines when I was a younger man. And so I certainly don't have, maybe many of you guys in my generation and older would feel the same way, I certainly don't have any moral high ground to stand upon. And for the rest of the young men and men now, and, and, and even some of the women in the room today who've grown up in this technological age in which pornography is as easy to access as the punch of a button on your smartphone or your computer, I suspect that you don't have any moral high ground to stand upon either. You may or may not have ever seen a Playboy magazine, but you've been willing participants in the growth of the pornography industry that Playboy largely spawned. And I think it's important to just get that out of the way right off the bat. A large percentage of people in the room today, including me, have no moral high ground or place to judge Hugh Hefner. And so I think that it's best that we just let Jesus do whatever judging needs to be done there. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah. 
I also think that it would be good if we would just take a few moments this morning of silent prayer and confession to just bring anything that you want or feel like you need to bring to the cross of Christ where you will find mercy and cleansing and forgiveness. Maybe there's been, maybe you've been involved in pornography recently, last night, sometime this week. Maybe there's some sexual sin that is in your life, has been in your life. Maybe some sexual sin that you're contemplating. I think right now would be a good time to just take a few moments of silent prayer, bring all of that to the cross of Christ, and leave it there at the cross this morning so that you can hear and respond to and be changed by what God wants to say to us in the passage that we're going to look at today. Bow your heads with me, if you would. Just a few moments of silent prayer and confession. Our Lord Jesus Christ in this culture would be so difficult to not be guilty of sexual sin in some way, shape, or form. We're so grateful, Lord Jesus Christ, that your death on the cross included our sexual sin. Lord, I pray for those that are in the room this morning that perhaps have been uh, involved in pornography uh, even of late. Some that have been involved in physical sin, uh, physical sexual sin in some way of late. Lord, the, the guilt, the shame that uh, some carry because of that can often cause them to feel that they're unworthy of your love and that there's nothing that they would hear today that they would hear with an open mind and heart, but that it would only come through uh, a prism of great guilt and shame. But Lord, we are thankful that our righteousness isn't based upon our performance the way that we've lived our lives, but because of the life that you lived and the death that you died. And so, Lord, today, would you give us the ability to rejoice in that and to hear what you have to say with fresh ears, to see it with fresh eyes, and to receive it with a fresh heart, one that is cleansed by the blood of you, Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we do continue in this series uh, called The Sex God, I want to look at a passage of Scripture that Jesus taught that I think is highly relevant. I think it's highly applicable to most, if not all of us in the room. I want to welcome the people who are listening to us through our podcast. I'm so glad that you joined us today. And I want to invite everyone this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament. If you're new and you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put the verses up on the screen for you. But if you're a regular here, you know that you should be bringing your Bible, digital, hard copy, whatever form you bring it in, just bring it so that you can make notes, so that you can refer back to it uh, in the future. Matthew chapter 5. This is the fourth week of the Sex God series. Now, here's what I've been trying to do. For the first three weeks of this series, 
All I wanted to do was just kind of lay a foundation for the beginning of sex and for the fact that God is the sex God. He is the God who is the author of sex. He thinks that sex is very good. He commands married couples to enjoy sex for their delight and for their pleasure. And I've tried to show you what it is that sex is designed to accomplish in a marriage. Well, today we turn a corner now. I called this series The Sex God, referring to God as the author of sex. If I would have been smarter, I would have taken the uh, slide, the logo that says The Sex God, and I would, have, I would have changed the G to a little g now, because what we're going to do is we're going to, be going to begin to look at how sex is a God in our culture today. In other words, how it has become a false idol in our culture. We're going to begin to look at some of the ways that this very good gift that God has given humanity has been twisted and distorted and perverted. And my hope is that as you saw the origins of sex in the first three weeks and the way that God designed it and what he designed it to accomplish in a marriage, my hope is that everything that we're going to look at in the weeks to come will be sort of obvious why they're distortions of the way that God created sex. And the first such distortion that we're going to start with in our, is one that our culture has not only monetized, but it's also commercialized and it's normalized. I want to start reading chapter 5, verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, if you've just joined us today for the first time in this series, I suspect that I may have just confirmed everything that you think that the church believes about sex, that it's uptight, that that Christianity is negative about sex. You're like, what? Lust? Hell? Gouging your eyes out? This is all very absurd. This is all very primitive. We're more advanced and sophisticated in this culture than they were back then. Today, we know that sex is just body parts. It's just sex. Why are Christians so uptight about it? Why are you so worked up about it? Why are you so negative about sex? And I can see how you could think that. If you just read this passage at a cursory level, I, think you, I, I can see how you, would, how you would think that Christianity is uptight and negative about sex. But I think if you take a deeper look at this passage, I think you'll find that Jesus has a much higher view of sex than our culture does. For instance... I think, the first, I think one of the things that Jesus is saying here, and you might want to write this down or make a note of this somewhere, that the power of sex must be respected. I think this is how, he, how high he sees sex, that it is powerful, that it is so powerful, in fact, that it's not just body parts, that it's not just sex, that it's so powerful that its power has to be respected. I think that's what he means with all of this talk about hell in this passage. There are a number of different Greek words that Jesus could have chosen in in reference to hell, but the one that he uses here is the is the word Gehenna. Now, I'm just going to give you a little linguistic lesson. I promise that this will be very painless. Just hang on with me for a minute. Gehenna 
is a translation, excuse me, a transliteration of an Old Testament Hebrew expression, the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a ravine on the southern side of the city of Jerusalem. It had been used in generations long before the one that Jesus is speaking to here. It had been used as a place where people would bring their children and worship the pagan god Molech by sacrificing their children into the fire. So it was a place of great suffering and weeping. Well, when the Jewish king Josiah launched a religious reformation in Judah, this valley, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, was regarded as a site of of heinous abomination. In other words, it had terrible stigma attached to it. So, when the Jewish people later on went looking for a place that they could put and throw and burn all of their garbage and all of their refuse, guess where they chose? That very place, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. And so it became a garbage depository where there was this continual burning of refuse. And so it serves here for Jesus as a symbol for suffering and destruction and death. So what Jesus is saying here is that unless you respect the awesome and the mysterious power of sex, it will bring great suffering and decay and destruction into your life. In a sense, it will set you on fire. Things are going to fall apart. Haven't you seen this from your own experiences, by the way? That if you don't respect the power of sex, things just begin to fall apart. Things enter your life. Sorrow, suffering, pain enters your life. Haven't you seen that? For instance, those of you who suspect that you're porn addicts, why can't you stop watching? Why can't you just stop? Why do you feel like that you're living a double life? And why do you feel so much shame? If it's just sex, if it's just body parts, why so much shame? Those of you who are sex addicts, how much have you lost as a result of your addiction? Anyone in the room, don't, don't raise your hand at this, but... Anyone in the room ever felt foolish because you gave yourself away to someone sexually whom you were dating, who dumped you soon afterwards, or whom you found later was cheating on you in some way? Anyone ever feel that? Anyone here struggle with trust issues because of that kind of thing? Jesus is saying that these things happen because sex is more than just body parts. It's more than just sex. Sex is powerful, and so you have to respect its its power. You have to do that. If you don't, it will bring pain and sorrow and destruction into your life. Now, some of you might say to me, because this is something that our culture teaches, you'll recognize it when I say it. Some of you might say to me, wait a minute. Sex, isn't sex just an appetite? Isn't that something that we just have to fill? Like it's an appetite, like anything else. When you get hungry, you have to, you have to eat. When you, when, you, uh, when you feel the need for sex, you have to have sex. It's just, it's just an appetite. Well, let's do an experiment together. Here are 
are some of the lyrics to a song by Jason Derulo? Anybody know Jason Derulo? It's okay if you raise your hands. Jason Derulo? Anybody in here? No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys know Jason Derulo. Here's the song. It's called Trumpets. It's a song about sex. And here's the way it goes. By the way, I've edited. I'm not going to give you all the lyrics. I'm also not going to sing it. I'm just going to put the lyrics up on the stage. Here's the way it goes. Every time that you get undressed, I hear symphonies in my head. I wrote this song just looking at you. Oh, oh. Yet the drums, they swing low, and the trumpets, they go, and the trumpets, they go. Yeah, the trumpets, they go. And then he's got, you know, I guess it's a chorus here that kind of sounds like trumpets. They go. Then he says, is it weird that I hear violins whenever you're gone, whenever you're gone? Is it weird that I hear trumpets when you're turning me on? I don't know if you, I don't know if you can tell, but, but when he has, he's saying that when he has sex with this woman, who I am going to assume, by the way, is his wife. I don't know that for sure. If I'm wrong about that, let me just stay in my little innocent box here. But he's saying that when he has sex with this woman, he hears symphonies. And all that makes perfect sense. If it's something that God has created, and if it's very good, and it's a gift that God has given us. What beautiful, what beautiful sentiment here. If if he's married to her. But now, if sex is an appetite, I'm going to argue this song makes no sense. Because I'm going to tell you, we don't hear symphonies and we don't sing these kinds of songs to things that we have an appetite for. For instance, let's sing this song to something that you might have an appetite for. Say, I don't know, a butterball turkey. Let's change the lyrics and let's see if this works when you sing it to something that you have an appetite for. I've rewritten the lyrics just a little bit. Every time you get stuffed, I hear symphonies in my head. I wrote this song just looking at you. Oh, oh. Yet the drums, they swing low. and The trumpets, they go. And the trumpets, they go. Yeah, the trumpets, they go. Is it weird that I hear violins whenever I think of your buttered breasts and legs? Your buttered breasts and legs. Is it weird that I hear your trumpets when you get sliced so thin? Now, it is weird, is it not, to sing something like that to a butterball turkey that you have an appetite for. It doesn't work, does it? No. The reason that we sing songs about, that we sing about symphonies and violins and trumpets when we sing about sex is because of its beauty and its transcendence and its power. It's not just an appetite. That's so reductive. That cheapens sex. Sex is so much more. It's powerful. It's transcendent. It's mysterious. It's beautiful. And if we don't respect its power, it will spread suffering and destruction into our lives. Now that's the, that's the kind of high view of sex that Jesus has in comparison to everything, in comparison to the way our culture sees it. Sex isn't just another thing in life. It's, it's mysterious and it's powerful. That's why people are moved to sing about it in such transcendent ways. Like you don't sing songs about your jobs. I mean, I know back in the day they sang, you know, you know, something about I'm working on the railroad, you know, that song. But that was just, like, that was just to fill the time. That wasn't like a, uh, they, weren't, they weren't hearing symphonies when they sang about their job. You don't sing songs about your job. You don't sing songs about your next doctor appointment. Sex isn't just any old thing. And its power has to be respected. Christianity has a much more elevated view of sex than our culture does. Now, 
I want to move on to what really is the main subject of this passage. The main subject of this passage is, is lust. And while I, nor probably most of us in the room today, have much of a right to get on a soapbox about lust, Jesus does. We're actually going to spend some time this week uh, on this subject, but we're going to spend some time next week on this subject too. It's kind of a two-part sermon within this series. Because Jesus doesn't just get on a soapbox about lust, he also speaks to how to heal lust here, doesn't he? Now, I would just say this, please, please, wait until after next Sunday to gouge your eye out or cut off your right hand. We're going to talk about what that's about next week. So don't do anything like that until then. But let's try to get a sense today of why Jesus says lust is such a problem. Now, you know what lust looks like, right? Here's a picture. Maybe you've seen this on social media lately. I think this is either, this is either a picture of lust or maybe it's just a guy who really likes the material the, girl, uh, the girl's dress is made of. I'm going to say it's lust, okay? That's what lust looks like. Or maybe, maybe lust looks like a guy sitting at a computer screen late at night with a glow of the screen on his face as he watches pornography on his computer. That's what it looks like. And you know what lust feels like, right? Like you see someone and you linger over an image in your mind about what it would be like to have sex with that person. And if you linger long enough, your body starts to respond, doesn't it? And you might ask, so what? What's the big deal? Who's that hurting? It's just me. It's just, it's just my mind. What's, what's the big deal about lust? Why is lust destructive? That's what we want to look at here. And I want to explain. I think this, this passage, I want you to understand that this passage that we're looking at today is from what is called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And essentially, what Jesus is doing in this passage is that he's contrasting a moralistic lifestyle with what life in the kingdom of God really looks like. So, for instance, the moralist would say, as Jesus says here, don't commit adultery. And merely the fact that he or she hasn't committed physical adultery uh, is something that a moralist would take pride in. See, I have fulfilled the ethic, uh, I've fulfilled God's ethic on sex because I haven't had physical adultery. Now, they could be, they could be looking at porn every night of their marriage. Every day at work, they might be subtly or not so subtly sexually harassing women at work. But they never physically had sex with another person uh, than their spouse. And so in that, they believed that they're following, that they're fulfilling God's commandments on sex. Jesus is saying to moralists, listen, just because you didn't have a physical affair doesn't mean that you were fulfilling God's ethics on sex. It doesn't mean that you were holy. It doesn't mean that you were righteous. All of that other stuff that you've been doing is a form of adultery too. And all of that other stuff he calls Lust. Now, there are two reasons that Jesus says lust is tragic and that it's destructive. Here's the first. Lust is a dehumanizing desire. It's dehumanizing. It's impersonal. Here's what happens when you lust for another person. You separate their body from their soul. All you see them as is a body. You don't see them as a human being. You don't see them as a person. 
You see them only as one thing. Something to give you pleasure. C.S. Lewis says this. Unless you are willing to make a complete personal commitment to somebody from whom, you've, from whom you're asking a complete bodily commitment, then you're really not after that person. You really don't want that person. You want an experience. And that person is a necessary commodity. You're dehumanizing that person. All of the hearts, all of the flowers, doesn't matter what you say. You're dehumanizing that person. You're using that person. They're using you, perhaps. It's impersonal. See, it's dehumanizing. And Jesus, he wants us to know that when a person... um, enters the kingdom of God. In other words, when they believe in Jesus, when they make Jesus the king of their life, when a person does that, they begin to change in the way that they see and treat other people. They begin to see other people as whole beings, not just bodies. They begin to see and treat other people in the same way that he would treat them. They recognize, they begin to recognize the dignity of other people. And they honor that dignity. They remember that people are created in the image of God. They know that people aren't just bodies, but that they're, they're souls. They're souls who have dreams and they have desires and they, they want to be loved. And they, they, they want to love and they're precious and they're valuable people. And so you don't treat them as disposable objects that you just use and throw away. You don't separate their body from the rest of them. That's part of the problem with lust is that it's so dehumanizing, Jesus says. And people in the kingdom of God, when they've made Jesus their king, they don't dehumanize other people. Our culture does that. But this kingdom, the kingdom of God, That's sort of its own culture within a larger culture, the kingdom of God. We don't treat people like that. That's part of the problem with lust. It's dehumanizing. There's a second problem. It's also not just that it is dehumanizing desire. It is also disproportionate desire. And you say, well, where do you see this in this passage? Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in, uh, I think he's retired now in New York City, Uh, made the point that the word that Jesus uses here for lust is a word that is almost never used in the New Testament to refer to sex. And he's written and spoken about this particular word in many different places. Uh, This uh, this word is used 62 times in the New Testament, and only two of those refer to sex. And the word is, it's the Greek word, epithumia. Epithumia. It's actually a word that means... A disproportionate desire for something. It means to take something that is good and to turn it into a God. In this case, it's taking sex and making it a God. Well, what's a God? A God is, well, among other things, a God gives meaning to your life. A God gives you a sense of identity. A God validates you. To make sex a God is to make having sex with the person that you lust for something that will give your life meaning. Something that will give you, listen to me now. I'm going to use a word that we're going to use later on in this series. When you make sex a God, it means that you make it something that will give you an identity. An identity. Now in our context today, who gets an identity from sex? Well... Perhaps Hugh Hefner did. 
But how many guys have you known that get their identity from being players who are validated by the number of women that they have sex with or that they can get to have sex with them? How many guys have you known over the years? I've certainly known guys like this who are validated and who get their identity from the number of women that they sleep with. And by the way, I want you to know, it's not just guys. A few years ago, uh, it was in 2015, a woman posted on her Tinder bio. I'm going to quote, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to explain rather than using every word that she uses. She said, I, and then she uses a derogatory word for sexual intercourse. She said, I blanked Odell Beckham. Odell Beckham, for those of you who may not know, is the wide receiver for the New York Giants. And then she wrote after that, she said, quote, get on my level and uses a derogatory word for women. Now, do you hear what she's saying? Do you hear it? Get on my level? Now, I don't, whether she really did that with Odell Beckham or not, what she was saying is that she was validated by sleeping with an NFL football player. It gave her a sense of identity. She's the girl who slept with Odell Beckham. Validated her, gave her a sense of identity. A month later, Right after the uh, Patriots, the godless New England Patriots had won the Super Bowl, a young woman took a picture of herself in bed with Julian Edelman that night. Julian Edelman, by the way, is a wide receiver uh, for the New England Patriots. She posted that picture to her Tinder uh, account, saying this, quote, I just, and then again, that same derogatory word for sexual intercourse, Julian Edelman. No lie. Do you hear it? What these women are saying, and what many men say is, if I can just sleep with this person, if I can just get her into bed, it will validate me. If I can just get him into bed, it will give me a sense of identity. You hear that? I was telling a friend of mine this past week who I was having lunch with, um, I was telling him about uh, a time a few years ago I was in Las Vegas and, then I, and I went into one of the casinos and there was a guy there at the craps table, one of the craps tables, that I'm sure you've seen this guy in many different places over the years. But uh, he's, this particular guy was about 65 years old and he has a 20-something-year-old young woman on his arm dressed in a way that was designed to be very sensual and to ooze sex appeal. And he was showing off for her at the craps table at how much money he had to spend and, and lose and showing her off for everyone else at the table and in the casino. Now, why did he want to show her off? Why? Because... She validated him. The fact that such a young woman was with him said, at least to him, and and in his mind it said to everyone else, that he was still desirable and virile and someone special that such a young, beautiful woman would be with him. On the other hand, for her, his presence in her life validated her, that she was so special to be with such a high-rolling, wealthy man, and his money gave her a sense of security. Now look, am I certain they were sleeping with each other? Yes. I, no, I'm kidding. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that for sure. But that was certainly the image that both of them were projecting. And Jesus says that this is destructive. 
Not only because you've dehumanized the person and used them for an experience, but also because what you are trying to do, what they are trying to do, is to heal themselves with sex. Finally, I'll be somebody. Finally, I'll be validated. Finally, I'll have an identity. Finally, I'll know that I'm somebody. If I can just sleep with her, or if I could just sleep with him, that's what is ultimately behind lust. It is this disproportionate desire. And the problem is that when you make sex your God, you will never have an identity. You'll always be searching for one. You will never be validated. You'll always be looking for validation. And you will make terrible, terrible decisions that will bring destruction and fire into your life just to be validated. Jesus says, if you make sex your God, that's what will happen. So it's dehumanizing, lust, and it's disproportionate. You're trying to make sex your God. Sex was never designed to be a God. Here's my last point for you. That sex is a signpost to God. It's a signpost to God. This is... By the way, this is why we sing these transcendent songs about sex. It's because it's, it's a signpost to God. What do I mean by that? Well, the beauty and the power of sex and the transcendent feeling that sex brings points you to the one who created sex. It points you to the one who is able to validate you in a way that you will never have to find validation again. Who can give you an identity that isn't based on who you have sex with. Who can give you a sense of security that sex with no person will ever give you. Who can heal you. And of course that person is Jesus Christ. Who allowed himself to be stripped naked, dehumanized, treated as though he had no dignity. So that you could reclaim the dignity for which you were created. Who allowed himself to be thrown onto the cosmic garbage dump. The cosmic Gehenna. So that you will never have to be. Who allowed himself to experience infinite sorrow. Physical destruction. And to be physically distorted for you on the cross. So that you could know God with an intimacy that sex was designed to point to. That's what sex is for. It's to be a signpost to that God. Now, maybe something that I've said has made you feel shame this morning. Maybe it's made you feel guilt. Look, I'm not trying to sling guilt and I'm not trying to sling shame. I don't think that has anything to do with the gospel. If you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he paid for your sexual sins on the cross. Accept that, preach that to yourself, and leave your guilt and shame at the cross. On the other hand, if you've never believed in Christ in a way that has brought a change to your life, today would be a day to believe in Christ, to acknowledge that you're a sinner, perhaps even, perhaps including a sexual sinner. And then to rejoice that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, allowed himself to suffer and die on a cross for your sins. And then you too can leave your guilt and your shame at the foot of the cross. Don't walk out of here with guilt and shame. That's not the point this morning. 
walk out of here with the mercy and the cleansing and the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can offer and that he willingly offers to those who believe in him. Don't walk out of here with that. Jesus is the beauty. Jesus is the transcendence. Jesus is the identity. Jesus is the validation. And Jesus is the security that sex was designed to point you to. He is the sex God. Listen to what he has to say today from Matthew 5. Listen to what he has to say. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus Christ, few of us here can live in a culture like the one that we live in without being guilty sexually in some way, shape, or form. We are so grateful this morning, Lord Jesus, that you have, that your death on the cross paid the price even for our sexual sins. Lord Jesus, there are people in the room this morning who have recently been involved in some kind of sexual sin. Maybe it was pornography. Maybe it was this week, last night. Maybe it was physical sexual sin with another person. I don't, I don't know. And Lord, you know, the problem is that when they come into this room this morning, they feel unworthy. They feel uh, everything that they hear, they hear it through a, a prism of guilt and shame. Lord, I pray today that you would reassure them that your death on the cross covers even their sexual sin and that they would rejoice in what you have done for them that they would rejoice in the fact that it's not their goodness it's not the quality of their life that gives them standing before you but that it's only the quality of your life and your death on the cross that gives them righteousness before God even in the midst of their sin. We thank you for what you have to say to us. It's so practical. It's so relevant today. Lord, uh, speak to us changes for those that maybe have never believed in you. Maybe today would be a day that they could do that, that they could bring whatever they have, whatever their sin is, whatever their baggage is, and that like me, like many people here in this room, they would just drop it at the foot of the cross and look at you and, and, and acknowledge that they're sinners and, and believe in what you've done for them on the cross and, and, and that you were raised again from the dead so that they could have life, real life, eternal life, life as it was meant to be in this life and in the next. Lord Jesus, we could worship you for all of eternity. We would never exhaust all that there is to say about you. We want to, we just want to say today, Lord Jesus, that you are greater than we can even imagine. And we thank you for that. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.